Jill, what made you want to write? It's funny, in the dedication to my book, uh, I dedicated it to my father who loved, uh, instilled my love of movies in me, and to my mother who always knew I was a writer. Um, from er my earliest you know, childhood that I can remember, I, want, I told everyone I wanted to be a writer. I loved creating stories. I loved, you know, writing little scripts uh, that you know we would do on eight millimeter. I've just, I've always kind of had that in in me, um, a love of words. It's just a, a perfect way of expressing yourself, and um, you know, when you find something that feels right, it, it's um, just the most uh, perfect way to express yourself in the world. You know, were you good at Scrabble? <laughs> um, you know, I actually probably am not. Great. I tend to be a sore loser. I'll admit to you. So I only I'm only good at things that I I really excel at. I remember we had a chess tournament in school when we were like we were just taught it at, in fourth grade or something, and I thought, well, I'm really smart and I play chess with my father, and I got beat in the first round. And uh, you know, it I've never played chess since. I'm kind of a sore loser. So. Um, uh, while I have a love of words, um, I, I think I also have a love of things like Google um, in order to find the right word and, and all the modern conveniences to help us uh, uh, cheat to, to find those things. I'm, I'm a little less uh, motivated when it's um, uh, just a game board in front of me. We'll stick with what you know. That's yeah. Okay. <laughs> Can you think back to one of your first scripts and when you look at now where you are and having critiqued people's work and rewritten it and all the things that you've done in your career, what was wrong with your first script? I had the chronic problem that ends the whole reason I created my method, um, uh, the whole thing that is behind the nutshell technique. Um, I wrote, so everybody thinks they've got a great idea, right, for a movie. They don't. Um, what, what everyone, what you might have is um, the great idea for one. You don't have a story though. You have what I would call a situation. And, and, it, and I would identify that as in my work as a script consultant, 99% of the time, that's what writers are writing. They're failing to write a story. Instead, they're creating a situation. Life is a situation, right? Life is this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. That's not a story. Story is this happens, which leads to that happening, which makes it ironic when this other thing happens. There's this connection between the parts. Um, and that's the problem I'm seeing in 99% of writers, that they are creating a situation, not a story. Um, and that was exactly my problem. Um, I had a great, I thought a great idea, this would make a, a great movie. and. I couldn't understand why I was feeling so blocked and having a hard time writing it. Um, I thought it was me. I thought it was, I must not be a good enough writer. I must not be talented enough. No, the problem, well, that might be true too, but the, the other problem was I didn't have technique, basically, and technique to understand the difference between what a situation is and what a story is. Um, so if you just have a situation, you're gonna be laboring to get from moment to moment to moment, and, and there's not going to be a natural connection and a natural progression. Um, and so it's going to feel stilted. It's going to feel unnatural. Um, uh, it's going to feel like bad writing. Um, but with technique, um, that's 
that's the secret to making something feel like an organic story that has has resonance and has power. It's not just reading somebody's diary of unconnected events, these different events that happened to somebody. There's there's a, a glue that is existing behind them that makes them the coherent. Um, so I absolutely suffered from the exact same problem that I've been addressing. That's the whole reason I created my method. Do you remember where you were or what was going on when you sort of had that aha moment about that? In terms of like, was did something? Did you were you watching something? And um, I was getting kind of a similar note uh, to the one I described. That people were saying things like they were using different words, but they were saying essentially, "This isn't really a story; it's a situation." The only thing was, no one could explain to me the difference, um, and so. I had a sense of what the difference was. I, I had good training. Um, I had studied at uh, Columbia University. I'd also studied with some private screenwriting programs in New York City. And um, I learned a lot of good th things in these different programs, but no one was bringing it all together. And I could sense in this note, I, I knew there was truth in what I was hearing, even though no one could explain to me how to transform it. I, I, got what they were saying. And I had a sense that there's sort of, if I may make a huge generalization, two approaches out there. Um, one is a linear approach, a strictly three-act structure, you know, beat method kind of approach to screenwriting. Uh, and the other is a more character-based, character arc approach. The problem I was having, and the problem that 99% of writers are having, I could tell belonged somewhere in the intersection between these methods. That these methods do not exist. If a story is functioning properly, these are not separate things, character arc and, and three-act story structure. They're actually very specific points um, where they need to intersect. And if you fail to hit those intersections, you're going to end up with a situation um, but not a story. And so, um, with this note I was getting, I started analyzing movies. I started deconstructing movies um, and, you know, deconstructed hundreds of them, just kind of obsessively um, uh, taking notes and trying to find these moments. And it took a little while. Uh, and right off the bat, I could identify, I essentially identify eight elements that are required to tell the story in my method. Um, and, and, and these are in, interconnected elements. These are not beats. These are not moments in time. Um, these are elements of the story. And I'd say right off the bat, I knew what five of them were, but it took a little while of analyzing movies. And then it, it did happen. There was kind of this breakthrough moment on the last, like last movie that I um, de deconstructed in this period where I was like, boom, the eighth method. I was like, oh my God, this actually works. I can't believe it. <laughs> what movie was it? I'm just curious. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can identify the movie. Um, I have notebooks full of them at that time, but it was kind of like, holy cow, this actually works once, once that last one dropped. And then I, I, I could use those eight things and apply it up against every movie from then on. It was like, oh my God, they're there. They're there. I can't believe it. It's there in every single movie. 
Well, you go into several movies in your book, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, from Chinatown to Silver Linings Playbook. I mean, you just you run the gamut. It's- yeah, I made a point of doing that. So the book, and, and I'll show you. Oh, please. Back. Yeah. Beautiful cover, by yeah, the way. Yeah, thank you. So it's a nice, lovely, large format book. And I recommend people get the paperback, not the Kindle for that reason. Okay. Um, because it's a, just a beautifully designed, um, large format book. And one of the big features of the book is the last section I have in it, 30 different oh, movies. That's great. So it's all in my one nutshell form, yeah. one form, 30 different movies. And so the book's designed for you to flip back and forth when you're reading. And I, I mention a movie so that you can look and see how it fits in the in the alphabetical, alphabetical listing of book of movies in the back. Oh, great. Um, you can see how that element fits into the whole picture. Um, so yeah, I have everything you know in the back from Casablanca to Pulp Fiction, to August Osage County, right? Movies that are different time periods, different genres, movies you probably think had almost nothing in common, structure-wise, other than maybe three acts, maybe. Um, I can identify these eight elements in all of these different ones. So um, I just wanted to illustrate that this is not a formulaic, you know, it's not a formula, right? We're talking about very, very different movies. Um, that um, are not following one template. No one would say the template to Pulp Fiction in Casablanca or anything alike, right? Um, but underlying it, they have uh, at the at the very basis they have the same structural elements that we're looking at and that are required for making them the great movies that they are. Um, they're the same eight things going on. Sorry to interrupt, but I, you can email. Uh, is that right? If if someone would like a, a yes. graph, yeah. yes. Okay. So my nutshell form. Um, so the, the the central tenet of my um, method is my nutshell technique form. Basically, I drew up these eight elements that are required to tell a story on and put it on a one page form um, for my clients and my students, and rather glibly wrote on the first one, screenplay as in a nutshell, and that's how the name was born. That's great. Um, yeah, and so this form, uh, I can use, so it's a visual method, so we can look, we can see right on the piece of paper what's working and not working. Not working. <laughs> and yes, anyone can download it. My website, jillchamberlain.com, uh, you can download free versions of the these uh, worksheets for your own use. Great. Um, so you can take that, yeah, nutshell technique and start playing around with it, start using it for your own stories. So this is a way, and what's important, I want to emphasize, it's not just, it's different than the beat sheet methods. These are not beats in time. There, Four of these are moments in time. Um, the rest of them are, and what's really different is the interconnection between the parts. Um, I don't know any other method in the 3,000 books on screenwriting that are on Amazon None of the other ones um, that I'm aware of explains the connection to, between the parts. Um, most of the books you're going to find on Amazon that deal with structure, uh, they do what I call a beat sheet method, where they tell you you're supposed to hit these pre-prescribed 15 or 22 or however many beats that happen in a typical Hollywood movie. I'm throwing all that out. These are not moments in time other than a first scene, a last scene, um, you know, identifying things like that. Um, these are other structural elements to the story other than moments in time. What's important is the connection between the parts, the glue that's going to hold them together. I'm wondering what a movie looks like when it's just a bunch of situations strung together. Yeah. So how does that look? Well, let's suppose a screenwriter's done that. They haven't fixed it. Now the film's out there. What does that look like? 
it feels so it feels episodic that's another way to put it where it's kind of one moment after a moment where each it's almost like we're seeing separate short films struck strung together um, instead of one coherent story and by the way not every movie um, tells a story. I'm talking about movies that tell a story. Um, actually, some of the films, Richard Linklater, famously, you know, he, uh, and he has said this uh, quite a bit, that uh, movies like Slacker and Boyhood are great movies. They're not telling a story though, right? Um, in, in, right, it's not one coherent story. It's looking at a slice of life. It's looking at different, following a character. There might be some things thematically pulling, it, pulling right. them in common, but it's not a story. So, Especially slacker, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's 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 not a, um, not every movie uh, tells a story. I have to say though, it's extremely rare um, to find a movie in theaters that doesn't tell a story. That's, you know, it's pretty unusual. To, um, so that, you know, that the Richard Linklater is the exception of, to the rule where we see something that's successful that we can be moved by that actually isn't telling a story. The vast majority of the time, um, movies need to tell a story for us to feel satisfied. We're gonna get restless. It's gonna feel episodic. We're gonna get lost on tangents. Why are we following this character? What did that moment have to do with that moment? There are gonna be things that happen that where you're setting plants, but you're not paying off. Um, so, uh, and, and it's a chronic problem that I see um, in screenwriters that they are failing to tell a story. You touch on something regarding the 99% and you say many writers can format a script, but most writers can't do, and that is? Yeah, so in my experience as a script consultant, 99% of writers um, fail to tell a story that what the 99% do instead is I would describe as present a situation. Um, so they pay me good money as a script consultant to come in and read their script. It may be perfectly formatted in industry standard. It may have some interesting characters here and there. It may have some great dialogue. It may have some interesting plot points. Um, but invariably, I was discovering 99% of the time, they were failing to tell a story. Um, instead, they were presenting a situation. So, um, you know, one way that I can describe it, a situation is it's like life, where in life this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And that's not a story, right? That's episodic. Um, a story, there's a connection where between the parts. This happens, which leads to that happening, which makes it ironic when this other thing happens. Uh, there's a connection between the parts. Uh, another way I can put it is if I can take your protagonist out of your script and put a completely different one in, and maybe with a couple of tweaks, it works just as well. You have a situation, my friend, not a story. Interesting. I shouldn't be able to do that. If you're telling a story, if I were to take your protagonist out, it would no longer work. A story is unique to your protagonist. There's something, there's a unique journey, a reason why you, the master of the universe here, has put this character on this path. There's something in that character that you've chosen to do this particular plot in order to bring out something in them. And so if I can put just another character in and it works just as well, that's not a situation. That's not testing anything specific to the character. It's just an arbitrary situation that you put a character, you put someone into. And that's what most people do. I mean, that's the way a lot of us start. It's, it's not, you know, I don't mean to um, 
It, it doesn't mean that it's not a fixable situation. Um, and that's why my method is why I have these on a form so that we can see visually right there and then, oh yeah, this, is, this piece is working, but you can see this piece doesn't work. We can isolate these elements and we can fix them looking at this one page form. And it's way easier to do it on this one page form than if you've already written the screenplay, then it's gonna be a bit more of a mess. Um, we can still use the form, but it's gonna be, it's gonna mean going back a little bit to the drawing board in order to fix those parts, in order to make it into a powerful story. I wonder if we can reverse engineer a current film that's out and make it into a situation. So I know sometimes I use movies that are dated, so let me try to like, A Star is Born. How could we reverse engineer it so that if we broke it down and we change it to a situation so we could see, like, d dissect it? Let me give you a different example. Sure, it's okay. my favorite. It's my favorite example <laughs> okay. to give um, is the movie Tootsie. Oh, right? yes. Right? Love so it. great, every screenwriter, every filmmaker should know Tootsie, right? If you haven't seen awesome. it, you, we have to go see it. It's a great movie to look structurally. Uh. This is what is exactly what's happening. 99% um, of writers are writing what I call fat Tootsie. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. This is fat Tootsie. I'm going to take the same movie, Tootsie. We have a protagonist, Michael Dorsey, out of work actor, right? Can't get an acting job. Okay. And he's desperate for an acting job. And so he's going to audition for the soap opera. And I'm going to make two very small changes um, to the plot is he's gonna audition for the soap opera in disguise, but what it is, the part isn't a female character. The part is gonna be a male character, but the character is an obese man in the fictional um, soap opera world, soap, the town that the soap opera takes place in. So Michael Dorsey is desperate for an acting job, right? So he's gonna to go to his makeup artist friend to have prostheses made and a costumer to make him a fat suit. And he's gonna go into the audition pretending that he's actually an obese man, and he's gonna get the part. So we have exact same movie, Michael Dorsey, out of work actor, desperate for an acting job, gets a part on a soap opera. The only thing I'm gonna change is instead of the part being a female character, it's the part of a fat man, right? Very similar movie, almost works, right? We tend to think it's funny seeing a, a man dress up an, as a woman in movies, we also could find it funny seeing this little, you know, guy like Dustin Hoffman pretending to be a big fat guy, right? Mm. He's got to get in and out of his fat suit, you know, before anyone sees him. Um, it almost works. But ultimately, fat Tootsie is a situation, not a story. You have any idea what the difference might be? Trying to forgive me. It's been a, it's been yeah. a little bit since I've seen it. I, I'm just remembering like when he is Tootsie that you know there's like this sort of where someone falls in love with him and there's this like dilemma mm -hmm. like how to like how does he tell him that he's a man he can he's got to keep this cover. So what would be? Yeah, and I could even tweak it though where uh -huh. that wasn't an issue where in in it he, he gets a um, crush on his female co-star. Right. right, the, right. I'll make another tweak though for Fat Tootsie. Okay, he'll tell his co-star that he's gay. So fat, so she, Julie, the love interest, feels just as comfortable with him, uh, her co-star, who she perceives as this gay fat man, right? She feels just as comfortable with him as she felt with the Dorothy character, the female persona. So still, almost works, right? We have the exact same thing, and then for the love interest, because he's, um, he says he's gay, 
part of the real uh, in the movie the to in Tootsie that his uh, Julie's father gets a crush on the Dorothy character. Right. But we'll make Dor we'll make Julie's father gay. Right. <laughs> so that could work. So it's still working the same. I'm, you stumped me. Yeah, I'm, I want to. Well, I've stumped a lot of people. <laughs> this is the key to the, this is key. And let me tell you, ninety nine percent of writers are writing fat Tootsie. It's a clever sounding situation, but it's not a story. The key, the big difference is one of the the biggest structural. And this is one of the eight elements, but it's the most important element is the flaw. That there's something in this journey that you've chosen in the plot you've created, that you put this character in, that's going to test a central flaw in them. Um, any idea what Michael Dorsey's flaw might be? Well, um, I guess he's, he's struggling with his career. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he's Yeah, but a flaw is something we can blame them for. So something we oh. look at them, you look down upon them. So what would you say is, what is a negative about him that we're judging, we can judge him about? A You're lack. kind of in the ballpark, though. It has to, it's related to his career. Right. Lack of confidence, lack of skill. Maybe he's not honing. I don't know, going after yeah. the wrong parts. He has a different, an overinflated view of himself, underinflated. I don't know. Well, I think most people point out the overinflated view, that he's very, very arrogant, mm -hmm. right? That he is, that's, you know, um, one of the reasons he hasn't been getting acting work is because he's so difficult to work with. And the only thing is, I would argue, after the movie Tootsie, do you think this guy's going to be any less arrogant on his next acting job? No, because he yeah. was able to pull it off. Right. And so now he has a supreme Exactly. Offense. Yeah. Exactly. So that has not he has, that is one of his flaws, arrogance. It's not the one that the movie's testing. The one that the movie's testing is his lack of respect for women. Ah, okay. Right. So we see in the beginning, this early scene at this party, he hits on every single woman with the same stupid line. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though I think he'd probably call himself a feminist, um, <laughs> he's actually a real jerk to women. Right. He's you know he's great friends with the Terry Gar character, and but the moment they sleep together, he suddenly freaks out and treats treats her terribly. Um, so deep down, he has this lack of respect for women. That is the perfect test of somebody who has a lack of respect for women. If you make them have to pretend to be a woman. Oh, interesting. Right. But in fact, Tootsie, that has nothing to do with his flaw. It's an arbitrary situation we've put him in. So unless we were to change the flaw, we made the flaw, you know, somebody who had a, a prejudice against people, um, you know, of different weight or, or different appearance, something like that. We could do we could we could change the character. So it was testing someone. But with the character that's in the original Tootsie of this man who's arrogant and doesn't respect women, putting him in a fat suit. That doesn't do anything to test that character. Right. So that's what 99% of writers are doing. It sounds clever, right? It sounds interesting to see somebody, you know, he's trying to pretend, it seems to be, have some interesting themes about being someone who, trying to pretend to be someone who you're not. We've got some funny comedy moments, um, ideas in there. It has nothing to do with the character. Right, and he gets hit on, and I remember the one yeah. scene where they're like, "Can you guys back up the camera?" And right. then they're like, "How far can we go?" Right. You know? So he's being judged for his looks. Mm -hmm. He's being hit on. All these different things. All these things right, that he right. does uh -huh. that he doesn't even realize he's doing. Right. Right. He does even in the movie in the in in you know in that second act he still doesn't realize it. Um, you know that he's been doing these things all along, and it's it's there's a great moment where the, the sexist director turns things around and says something about the fact that. That, you know, he's the sexist director has been dating Julie, and um, the 
his Michael's Dorothy persona is kind of suggests I know what's going on, and and the director says, yeah, I, yeah, you know, yeah, sure, I see other women, but I I wouldn't want to tell her, I wouldn't want to hurt her, right? And Michael Dorsey's used that exact same line talking about Terry Gar. Right. Of course, you know, I don't want to hurt her, right? So he doesn't even realize he's doing these things. Sure. So this is the way. This is the way we're going to get the character to finally face something. So another important concept about this is that your character's not a victim. Michael Dorsey's not a victim of the universe suddenly making him have to be a woman and deal with that. He actually asked for this. He wanted an acting part. He said he could handle this. He said, I'll take, you know, I'll do anything. I'll do any acting job. He willingly went in there and auditioned for this. Um, so this is another part of the 99%. They're making their character a victim of circumstance. They're having arbitrary stuff happen to the character. It shouldn't be. Um, your character should not be a victim. Even if your character is a, a victim, um, for them truly to be a protagonist, they, they need to have a certain amount of agency involved. They need to be contributing to the problem in some way. If you don't give your character a strong flaw, you're just making them a victim. The, all, the reason these bad things are happening to them are just fate. It's just bad luck in the world. It shouldn't be that. Um, that might be part of it, but it needs to be part of, you know, why it's so difficult for Michael Dorsey and Tootsie is the fact that he's sexist. If he weren't a sexist guy, he wouldn't have been having a difficult time in Act Two of Tootsie. Um, so uh, what we're doing is that we're making sure that we're testing the character with something um, that is getting something, getting down at something deep down inside of them that's unique to them, and, and and that's why this character exists in this story instead of another character. What is the nutshell technique? So the nutshell technique is a method that I created it, um, for my students and clients um, to address this chronic problem I see, that 99% of writers fail to tell a story, uh, that instead the 99% uh, situation. So all, all I did is I drew up the eight essential elements required to successfully tell a story, created the schematic, it's a one-page schematic, um, and uh, these are not beats in time. These are elements that are connected. That's what makes it different. This isn't a linear, it isn't a strictly linear structure. Um, if you look at the form and folks can download my form from my website, jillchamberlain.com. Mm -hmm. um, the key is the connect. You'll see all these little arrows and things um, explaining the connection between the boxes. Um, uh, and that's what makes it different. I'm getting at the glue that is required to tell a story that is uh, required to make sure that it's not episodic. Um, uh, a story is not isolated events. There's a connection between them. And this gets you visually um, is a way for you to see, identify, first of all, what are those elements? Do you have those eight elements in your story? And then are they working together in conjunction? They need to work together. Um, and it's about making choices, actually. It's about finding out what you're married to. Um, once people start to, because it forces you to get things out of your head and on this piece of paper, uh, and it's not a lot of homework. It's not like I'm asking you to write, you know, a long uh, beat sheet, ex, you know, multi-page beat sheet to explain. It's pretty brief on one page. Let me, let's see if I can identify these eight elements, first of all. If you can, you want to see visually if, how they're working together. And if they're not working, you can see it right on the form. 
Um, so it's a way of finding out what am I married to? I really love this premise about a guy who wakes up and it's the same day all over again. Um, but it's not working with this flaw that I identified of uh, that he is naive. That flaw doesn't work with this, right? So which one do you want to change? You want to change the flaw or you want to change the great premise? I'd probably stick with the great premise, right? Um, but then I have to think, well, what would be the right character to put in that circumstance where they wake up and it's the same day again? Now, somebody who's naive, that wouldn't really work. That's not a really good test for them. What about somebody who's really self-centric? Right now you can see right on the form, okay, that works much better. This is gonna be a much better test of somebody who's self-centered and self-centric. If they're repeating the same day again and again, it's gonna get really boring, right? It's gonna force them to start trying to do different things and maybe finally change and find something better in themselves when they realize that life isn't really worth living if you're just living it for yourself every day, right? So it's gonna take him all that time to figure out in this journey uh, and this test you've put him on of, of suddenly being caught in a universe where he's waking up and it's the same day again, to finally face this flaw deep down in, him, in himself and find a way to change. And that's how he breaks from the cycle. And also play off someone who is more naive and has right. more of a sort of a, right. a, a broader view of the world. Yeah, yeah right, as a, as a contrast to that character. So it's a way of just isolating these elements really simply it's a very simple method, really. You know, very simply, you can see what's working and what's not working right there on a piece of paper. Um, and it's just a matter of, of kind of small adjustments very often can make a huge difference between a story, first of all, not working, being a situation, not feeling satisfying, um, and one that's satisfying, that, you know, it helps you find that unexpected and surprising ending and satisfying way of doing things. Um, that you're probably not going to find otherwise if you're just following a beat sheet method or if you're just um, keeping with a situation. Can you touch on briefly what those eight elements are? Sure. And, um, you know, and I'll remind you that folks can also download the forms themselves from my website, jillchamberlain.com, so you can see it for yourself. Um, but I'll, I'll point out what the elements are. Um, so I do have a few moments in time. And, by moments in time, I'm talking about the first scene and the last scene. So we're going to identify in the first scene what a character wants. Uh, and then we're going to have an, uh, a the next moment that I identify is what I call the point of no return. This is the big event that's going to push us into the main part of the story. It's the event that makes this movie this movie. Um, Everything else on here is internal to the character. The point of no return is the one moment that's external to the character. It's the one thing that has to happen to them. Um, so, uh, so we're talking about Groundhog Day, right? So the, the, the point of no return is when he wakes up and discovers it's the same day again, right? And it should feel like it's this moment makes this movie this movie. Without that scene, you wouldn't have the movie Groundhog Day, right? It's absolutely essential. So it's, a, it's an important like moment like that that's going to drive the rest of the story. It's also external. You notice it wasn't the point of no return is never somebody decides to do something. There's an element of fate that is involved when we're looking at the point of no return. So of all the elements, it's the one thing that's external that had to happen to him. He could have not had that happen. It woken up and it was February 3rd, and then this movie wouldn't be this movie. 
But for whatever reason, he woke up and it was February 2nd all over again. That's outside of his control. Um, if we were going to look at the movie Tootsie, sometimes people say, oh, the point of no return is when he goes to audition for the part. That's a choice, right? So the point of no return needs to be external to the character. So I would not identify it as he goes to audition. Um, what, and what you want to identify is the moment outside of his control. So the part where everything really changes is when so he could have blown that audition, and he almost blows that audition. He comes very close to blowing it. But the female producer likes him, right? And at one point she says, I like him. I like her. We're going to hire her. And she leans over and says, you've got the part. I'm sending the contract to your agent. That's the point of no return. That Because that moment's outside of his control, right? That had nothing to do with his choice. He could have blown that audition. He almost did blow that audition. But that's the moment, boom, now we're in the movie known as Tootsie. Um, one, another thing I like to think of, a great example of this is um, the differences going from Act 1 and Act 2, is The Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, Act 1, it's a black and white. Point of no return is she thinks that a tornado has lifted her house up and dumped her in the land of Oz, and boom, we're in Technicolor. We want that feeling when we enter Act 2. We're in a whole new world. We ain't in Kansas anymore, right? So it's a whole new world that they're, they're facing. It's one thing Michael Dorsey decides to audition one day as a woman. It's another thing he's got to fool everybody 24-7 into thinking he's a woman. That's the main story. Or in Groundhog Day, he's now trapped in a cycle where every day is Groundhog Day. That's the main part of the story. Um, so there are two kinds of stories I, I, I talk about in the book, comedy and tragedy. Um, and these are not, these definitions don't come from, don't blame me if you don't like them, they're from Aristotle. Um, these are the original academic definitions of comedy and tragedy. So when I say comedy, I'm not talking about a haha -ha comedy. I'm talking about an Aristotelian comedy. Um, and so an Aristotelian comedy, according to Aristotle, by definition, is where we have a protagonist who overcomes a flaw. So flaw is going to be the next element I'm going to talk about. Uh, and that they're, they're going to go through change, and then eventually they're going to have a happy ending. Um, structurally, we also have tragedies. A tragedy is going to be the opposite. So we have the same setup. We have the character wants something. They get it in a point of no return. But instead of going down, 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 and then coming up and having a happy ending, we're going to go in the opposite direction. They're going to go up, 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 up before they come down and have their sad ending. 95% um, of stories are going to be comedies, by the way. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, at least 95%. And by the way, this applies both to feature film and also to episodic television. Episod episodic TV works structurally just like little, each episode is a, like a little mini feature film. They have all of these eight elements, just like you find in a feature film. And forgive me, sorry yeah. for interrupting, but uh, so then the tragedy, it doesn't necessarily mean that like a death occurs, it just means that they don't change. Is that right? Or That's right. It also means they have a sad ending. Ah, okay. So they should, you know, it, it, uh, it, they have an unhappy ending typically, but it is, and it's not just an unhappy ending. You know, the way we colloquially say that, oh, that's tragic um, in life, it probably is not the same as a tragedy in Aristotelian sense, because you might just say something sad happens to people and they have a sad ending. That's, that's not a structurally a, a, a tragedy. Structurally, a tragedy is because of their own flaw. So it would have to be their flaw contributes in some way to their downfall. So they fail to change from that flaw, and that, that's part of the downfall. And, um, and so when we're looking at the protagonist as the, the um, backbone, there are other elements of the story. But the nutshell, we're looking at the protagonist as the, um, 
uh, the main uh, backbone structurally to structure everything around it. Um, yeah, and then like I said, another major part of it was the flaw. What's the character? The flaw is really the DNA of the whole story. It, it, it's a good, strong flaw as a writer is one of your best tools to make sure your story is strong. Because if you don't give your character a strong flaw, you're not really giving them anywhere to go. That change is what the story is really about. So if we took Sunset Boulevard, we know what Norma Desmond, her flaws are, but the screenwriter, what were his flaws? He was desperate, he was too naive, he was tricking her. Uh, yeah, so he's the protagonist, and yeah, is that he's cynical, right? He's cynical, he is just a no good writer, um, he's always putting himself down, he's putting down, you know, that voiceover, and that's one of the purposes of the voiceover, is to, for us to hear that very cynical voice he has, where he talks about, you know, when he's reading Norma's screenplay, and he says, you know, it's amazing just how bad, how bad, bad writing can be, right? That's all happening in voiceovers. That cynical voiceover, that cynicism, is the part, and that part of him that refuses to find hope that life could be different, that actually maybe he could find actual true love, right? He starts to think he's falling in love, but that cynical voice kicks up and gets in the way. He could have been happy. He could have walked away. That's why he makes a perfect tragic figure, right? It's, he's not a victim of circumstances. It's his own flaw that is his downfall. He could have walked away. She, you know, the love interest is, when he brings her to the house, um, you know, she keeps saying, I've, I've not seen any of this. She's willing to completely forgive him for his sordid situation. Let's just go. Let's just leave. He won't let her. He won't let her do that. He forces her to see it and then pushes her away. So that cynicism and 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 that cynicism is the same thing that gets him to tell Norma, uh, reveal to Norma that where the truth about her fan letters, right? Those all the fan letters she's getting are actually being written by her ex-husband, who's the uh, the live-in servant now, right? Um, and, the, and that um, Cecil DeMille wasn't coming to see her, he just wanted the car, right? He still could have survived. He lost the girl, but he could have survived. He could have walked out of the door, fine. But he had to rub that into Norma Desmond's face. And that's why Norma kills him, right? You can't just let him walk away. That's why she shoots him in the back. So if he hadn't done that, if he just said goodbye and took a suitcase and gone, he would have lived. It's that, that tragic flaw of cynicism that he just can't believe that the world could, could be kind enough to allow him to have love and hope, even though everyone, you know, he's, he's been giving every opportunity of that. He's got this, you know, this wonderful girl who's completely forgives him this sordid situation um, and uh, wants to be with him despite everything. He won't have it. And the fact that the film opens with the ending, mm -hmm. is, is, that, is that something that we should be aware of? I mean, it, 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 does, it, it takes a skilled writer to be able to it do that. It is a skilled writer, yeah. Um, well, it's great when you can have um, a beginning and ending image that relate to one another. Um, I mean, this uses, actually, it's a very popular device now in television, I think, uh, owes to Sunset Boulevard, the flash forward. Um, which was pretty unique in 1950 when Sunset Boulevard was created. I mean, it was kind of an anomaly, right? Where we had, it broke all the rules. We have a narrator, we have a dead narrator, um, and we have uh, a story that's in flashback. Those are kind of three things that, you know, that screenwriting 101, they'll kind of warn beginning screenwriters not to do. Um, doesn't mean you can't do them, because look how genius it is in Sunset Boulevard. 
problem is it's hard to live up to something as well as Sunset Boulevard does. Um, but the flash forward device of having um, uh, is become, I think, a really popular device, uh, a, a device for using for television. Um, in that, in television, sometimes you are has a slower so that point of no return I was talking about happens in um, a feature film close to the twenty five percent mark in the running time. Feature film sometimes it happens a little bit later. I mean, I'm sorry, in, in episodic television it happens a little later sometimes. Because we're doing so much world building, we're building, you know, in a pilot episode for an entire 10, um, 10 hour series, um, this whole world. So sometimes it happens almost close to 50% in, uh, in the um, uh, running time. Can we continue on with the eight critical story elements? Yeah. So the story elements, um, uh, the next important thing to talk about when I talk about the point of no return, um, in the point of no, no return, the character gets something they want. They also get something they don't want, um, and that's going to be what I call the catch. So you get what you want, but with the catch. So Michael Dorsey gets a part, but he's going to have to dress up as a woman. Um, uh, in Groundhog Day, Phil Connors only has to spend 24 hours in Puxatani. That was his want, but the, the catch is it's actually going to be the same 24 hours done over and over again. So the catch is attached, so it's a problem. We can't just give our character what they want. Um, because that deflates conflict. So you're giving them something that they want along with something they don't want. And the catch is also could be said to be the perfect test of their flaw. So the um, flaw in you know, Phil Connor's flaw is that he's self-centric. This is the, the catch being that he's gonna stuck spending the same, same day over and over again. It's the perfect test of someone's flaw is that they're self-centered. Uh, in a comedy, it's going to end in the happy ending, but they're going to go down, 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 down uh, before. Because you've you got to hit rock bottom before you can make a change. Um, so it, keep in mind, in your typical ha-ha comedy, and your typical ha-ha comedy is an Aristotelian comedy. It's down, 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 down. Um, we're laughing as bad things are happening to the protagonist. They are not laughing. They are not having a good time in act two of a comedy. So they're going to go down, down, down until they're going to hit rock bottom, uh, what I call their crisis. The crisis has two requirements. Uh, one is it's their absolute lowest place. Uh, and then it is the other requirement is that the opposite of the want. Um, actually, Groundhog Day has a really interesting one in that he's actually finally spent, after being stuck there, he finally tells the truth to Rita, the love interest, about what's going on, and they actually have kind of a wonderful day together. But it ends in this very bittersweet moment where they're falling asleep, and he um, says, and the terrible worst part is, tomorrow you're going to think I'm a jerk again. And it, what is wonderful about it is this wonderful irony, and that's what we're setting up with the crisis being the opposite, this irony. He only wanted to spend 24 hours in Puxatani, now he wishes the day could last forever because tomorrow she'll think he's a jerk again. So it's, we're setting this delicious irony there. Um, then the next thing we're going to identify in the nutshell is we're now entering the act three. The beginning of act three is the climax of your movie. Uh, and the operative word that we're going to use, though, is the climatic choice. At the heart of a true climax, your protagonist is making a difficult decision. Um, so in Groundhog Day, his choice is to start, stop, to stop fighting it, to accept that he's there, 
and start trying to live every day for the fullest. And so he becomes a really good person. He starts, you know, doing nice things and saving the day and doing, thinking of others because what's the point in, uh, living and, and trying to, um, have a short-term gratitude. Uh, he's got to find a different experiment with a different way of living. So he actually starts becoming this town hero of this person who's the, known as this good guy because he's got nothing better to do. Um, and that finally breaks him free of the, the curse. And in the final step, the final step is the very last uh, structural element time-wise, the very last scene of the movie. Um, and now the character's going to come full circle. So if his uh, flaw was that he was self-centered, he's come full circle to its opposite strength, that he now is um, selfless. And right, because he's, he's been doing these things uh, for everybody in the town of Puxitani. And he um, uh, wakes up that final day and he's actually, it's become February 3rd. He's free of the curse and he actually wants to stay. Um, so those are the eight structural elements. And so, like I said, it's not just moments in time. This is not a beat sheet method. Um, they are, what's important is the glue. It's the, the, the structure that holds these pieces apart. It's the connection between these parts. These are not isolated moments in time. And this is a real easy way for writers. They can use it if they download the worksheets from my website. I also use them in my workshops and in my private consultation. We can see right on the piece of paper what's working and what's not. And if it's not working, how to adjust it by seeing that it fits, you know, what, what do we need to change um, in order to meet the requirements in order to, uh, to tell a story effectively. Once you thought of the nutshell technique, you sat down and watched these hundred plus movies and wrote in these notebooks. When did you actually write the book? So I created the method and I started using it right away with my clients and students uh, in workshops. And I had been doing it for probably about five years. And my students kept telling me, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. Um, and then somebody from the University of Texas Press happened to take my workshop and said, there's nothing like your method out on the bookshelves. And I said, I know. And he said, you should write a book proposal. And so I did. And so that's how the book came about. Interesting. And so you kind of put yourself in a whole new realm. Is that right? Because now you're writing an outline or you're querying publishers or did Texas Press just go ahead and say, this is it. We love what you did. Did you have to go through this whole process? I did go through the process. I didn't approach others. Um, you know, at the time I was known, uh, I didn't have a huge name as a script consultant. So I didn't query other publishers. Um, I just went, uh, but I did, I did write a proposal for University of Texas Press. It had to go through that um, process. Um, you know, I have to say writing the proposal was really hard. Um, I, I really uh, had to chain myself. I discovered myself having to chain myself to my desk to do the proposal. And I was really concerned, you know, if I get this book deal, is the book gonna be as unpleasant as writing the proposal? Because writing the proposal, I don't know what it was about it, but it was super unpleasant. And luckily it wasn't, the book was much more pleasant. I think it's because in the book, I mean, it's kind of similar to what happens with your screenwriters. Um, when you're doing the proposal, it's a little bit like the beginning phases where you're doing the, the structural planning for, you know, the, the, um, when you're creating a nutshell for the screen, for a screenplay, I describe it to my students and clients as 
you know, spending a lot of writing days where you're kind of going, and you're not typing anything, right? Because you're doing all this plotting in your head. And I find it really unpleasant, you know, figure that, that thinking phase, because you're not, you want to write, um, but you need to think through these parts. And the book proposal was kind of similar to that, where it was like, oh, should I do it this way? Should I figure out how to structure the book? Because um, uh, it was very carefully structured in the end, where I have the trying to figure out having the nutshell diagrams in the back and having them uh, have a method where it's when I refer to different nutshells in the book, I use this, I use underline to indicate that it's going to be reflect in the diagrams in the back. And it, it took a long time to figure that out, how exactly. And I kind of flip flopped a little bit in developing the proposal of how to do this book. Um, and uh, so it was, it's, it was not a pleasant process, process, but luckily the writing the book was pleasant. I was curious how that was for you. So once you got sort of the green light to go ahead and write this book, did you have a deadline that you had to have a first draft? Yeah. And I was, I mean, that was one of the reasons I was really glad I, I was working with a publisher versus going self-published. I'm, and I think a lot of writers will relate to this and a lot of screenwriters, I'm terrible when I don't have a, a hard deadline. It's, I, I find it much more motivating and much more helpful to have a firm deadline because um, you don't get to make excuses, you know? So, I'm, so I think that's, you know, the lesson to screenwriters, you got to find, if, even if it's an artificial deadline, even if it's a, you know, to, in order to enter to a competition or it's with a writing group, some sort of deadline, because if it's open-ended, you'll take forever. Um, so I had a, I gave myself a six month deadline in, uh, to write the book. Um, I knew that I had given myself a year, I would have taken a year. But if I only gave myself six months, I could I would do it in six months, and that's what I did. And so was one of the requirements they see the full first draft, or do they just want to see section by section, chapter by chapter? Um, the full thing, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they were okay with six months? Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So then what, what, once you knew this clock was ticking, like what was your day like? It would, or would you do it on weekends? Um, sounds yeah, I, I mean, I personally, I need to block out time in my calendar. It doesn't mean I'll stick to it, but I'll, I need to put it on the calendar. So I, I, I would put um, mornings basically, you know, nine to, and, I, and I'm certainly not typing away all, all that whole time, but I would put, you know, nine to noon, Monday through Friday, unless I had something else I had had to book then, I would try to schedule around that so that it was on the calendar. And I wasn't writing the entire time, but if it was on the calendar, that that was the time that I blocked off for that. And I tried to move everything else around that. And then did you go and do your own outline first? Did you yeah. sort of chart it out? And how did you do that? It's fascinating. Um, well, I mean, that was part of the book proposal. You know, that, that was actually in the proposal that I had to, that I found, I was actually planning how I structured the book. I didn't necessarily have to do it that way, but that's the way I did it. In, you know, in the way I presented the proposal, it forced me to think about how I was gonna organize the book. Um, and I, I tried a couple different ways before I settled on the, the way I ended up doing it. Which was, you kind of came up with chapters first and then wrote or after? Well, um, I, with the idea being that of doing, of doing the set, the idea of having all of the nutshell chapters, the nutshell diagrams in this back section, that was the piece I couldn't quite decide how to do. In the beginning, it was like, well, maybe every time we mention a movie, we then cut to a diagram of one of them. And then 
what I came up with it was having it in its own section and that we would flip back and forth between the two sections. Um, but it, it took me a little while to come up with that. I also have a, a system where in the book I use underline. So when I, I, in order to, I kind of tried to structure it a little bit like my classes where I'm trying to repeat and emphasize things um, in order to get points across. And so whenever I, and, and to illustrate my point when I'm so, each of the chapters, for example, is on each of the elements of the nutshell. So we have an, you know, I'm, I'm, I flipped randomly to the chapter on the catch. And so as I go through talking about the catch and I'll talk about different movies, how the catch works, when I refer to one of the movies that's in the background, in the back section, uh, and I'm quoting the catch that's in the nutshell, I used a technique where I underline that element to it so that you can see, so the reader can very easily see and it indicates to them, oh, I could flip back. So I'm looking at, it's, she's talking about the nutshell for usual suspects. If I want, I can flip back to here, the alphabetical nutshell section, I can find usual suspects. And then I can see when she quotes it that, and she's talking about the catch, that she's actually using the exact same wording here as I do there. So that was one very specific structural thing that I, I kind of came up in the development um, that I did during the proposal and was not an original, that was not the way I originally thought about doing the book. There were a couple different ways in trying to figure out how to do it. So let's say I'm a screenwriter and I email you and I say I need my script fixed ASAP and we agree to work together. What are the first things you're looking at? Um, you know, I'm kind of simultaneously looking on both a macro and a micro level. So I, as I'm going, ultimately, ultimately the story is of ultimate, of the utmost importance, but I'm also, as I'm reading on the page, noting things. So I mark things up as I go. Um, so I, I may question things or I may, um, already have suggestions that have to do with sometimes minor kind of things, or I can think of a better phrasing or, um, you know, your action description isn't clear enough, especially those first 10 pages where, which are super important. If I'm getting, I'm having a really hard time slogging through those, that's a really bad sign. So I might even spend a fair, even more time trying to point that out to help you. Um, so I'm looking at the micro level, but I'm also ultimately kind of sitting back and looking at the macro level. How does the story work? Um, and, uh, and I often don't know the answer to that until I get to the very end. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of doing two things at once. And then at what point do you send them notes and do they have to make changes for you to review or it's up to them whether they want to make those changes? So I, what I do is I meet with the writer I, either in person or via Skype. Um, and I have their script marked up. Um, but I don't do written notes. I don't do a written report unless you want to pay for that separately, which I don't recommend. I don't think that's a very efficient use of your money. I mean, I'll, I'll happily do it if you want to pay me by the hour to sit and type up a report. I don't think that's a very time efficient use of your money. I think it's much more efficient if we have, so with each of my consultations, um, it includes 60 to 90 minutes where we talk. Um, either in person or via Skype. So I go through on the page, you know, pointing out things, but also talking story. Um, I, I also find it, it's also, it's not just that it's time inefficient that for me to type up a report is that the, to do that is not a two way thing. So it's more efficient for me to be able to start to ask you questions. Um, and 
try to find out what you were, if something's not working, try to figure out what it was you were trying to do versus being um, doing some sort of detached coverage report. Um, that's just not a very useful tool for the writer. Um, you want, as a writer, you want to know how can I make this better? So the way to make it better is for us to talk about it, it's for us to talk about, oh, well, oh, that's what you're trying to do. Oh, I totally did not get that that was the character's flaw. You need to, let's look at, you know, this very first scene and see if you can adjust. If that's the flaw, they should be saying this in the first scene. So we're going to look at, you know, specifics. So I'm really kind of script doctoring and trying to and help. You know, I'm not just giving you a, a, a passive report that tells you thumbs up or thumbs down. That's it's not very useful to, to who cares if I think it's thumbs up or thumbs down. You want to my job is to make your script as good as it can possibly be. Um, so I like to have that two way conversation. So I, we can talk about, oh, that's what you're trying to do. If you're trying to I did not get that at all. If you're trying to do that. You need to um, bring it up in moments like this. Let's you know, I want to hear that if the character is flaws, that they're jealous. They should be saying that in this moment or they should try doing this. Um, so there's a two-way conversation that happens there. And are most people receptive to when you want to make changes or, or that you <laughs> suggest them? <laughs> I would say 97% of the time, right? Nine, 97% of the time they are. And, they're, and, 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 and that's why I generally love my job, right, is that, um, you know, People pay me to tell them what works and doesn't work in their script. And they say, oh my God, thank you. That's such a good suggestion. And they love it and they go with it. And then there's the 3% who, I don't know if they think I'm a run a studio or something. Or I'm some sort of gatekeeper because I'm not, <laughs> you know, they, they are occasionally unhappy that I, you know, that I, and it's, um, you know, this isn't a, a productive thing. You're not trying to convince me, you know, why are you trying to convince me your script doesn't work when... I'm telling you it doesn't work, right? I'm trying to help you help you so that you can make it work. Um, so occasionally you find someone who's resistant. That was funny because that just prompts something in my mind about, I was watching an interview with Errol Morris. It was an older interview and he said, most people actually don't see themselves as they are. And actually other people are better gauges at who they are. You know, that, that cliche, you know, I know you better than you know yourself. Yeah. I've always hated that, that expression, mm -hmm. but he said that that's actually kind of true, especially mm -hmm. in retelling of his things. Do you think that's true with writers? That they don't, you mean as far as their ability or? No. You know, I'm actually surprised that they kind of, for the most part, and the reason why 97% of them are receptive is that deep down they do know. That, and that's why most of them go well, is that they're not generally shocked at what I'm gonna say. They might be disappointed. They might have expected, hoped that they tried this thing and that it, you know, it worked and it didn't, but they're not shocked. They're kind of like, yeah, I kind of suspected it. And so I'm just very, you know, and, and they're trying and that's part of the point. Some of the things you're going to try work and you'll be, and I'll tell you that and you, you'll be pleasantly surprised and then other ones aren't going to work and it's going to confirm what you maybe suspected. Um, but that's the point of getting the draft done and on paper and out of your head um, so that someone, you know, or have a professional read it um, so you can find out what works and what doesn't work. And some things you'll surprise yourself and do better than you thought and some things not as well. So for the most part, people actually aren't so surprised. You know, it's, it's, I think those are the 3% are the ones who have, are ones who do have a, 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 diff, a disconnect in their head about what it, what it is and how it's working. 97% of people don't. They kind of, they hope I love every single word, but when I point out something, they're like, yeah, I kind of knew that wasn't working. And, and so it, 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 you know, it um, resonates with them.
do you think writers are very self-aware or they're just, they've been critiqued so much with their writing through school or classes that they've taken, whatever, that they just kind of know, yeah, I realize I, I, I'm not doing active voice here. I'm doing, you know, well, I don't know. What do you think it is? You know, it varies at their level. It varies at how often they've been critiqued. Uh, it varies at the kind of critiques. It, I see all different levels. I, you know, um, where people are quite self-aware and and are used to criticism and they're not going to be defensive um, and they know the things and they'll say it right up when I have points, you know, that out of weakness, they're like, yeah, I'm not great at doing action sequences. Um, and then there are others who aren't are self-aware. Self it really depends. Do beat sheets work? I think having an outline is an excellent idea. Um, uh, I, I do know writers who don't need them. Uh, I think they need something, and, and these are going to be writers, I speak of writers I've worked with, so they are tend to already be um, devotees of using the nutshell technique, and that might be all they do. They won't do a beat sheet. They'll just do a nutshell technique form, and as long as they are true to that, they'll, they'll have it, and it's nice and solid, and maybe they'll work with me one-on-one -on -one to make sure their, their nutshell is solid. They'll tack it up on their bulletin board, and then they'll write from that, and they don't do any other beat sheet or outlining. Um, I think most writers need a beat sheet or outline. They need more detail than that. But it, it varies. As long as you, so as long as you have a solid structure, um, you don't necessarily need more than this. You know, the idea, this isn't drawn to scale, um, but you'll see that most of my structure things are in Act 1, and act three, and the only thing that's in act two is this one element here. And act two is actually twice as long. Um, so I don't have a bunch of structure requirements. I don't have required beats in your act two, even act two, even though act two is twice as long. I strongly believe that if you properly structure things in act one and you properly structure things in act three, it does all the heavy lifting of supporting your act two, even though your act two is twice as long as long as you maintain conflict. Um, so I know lots of writers who hate beat sheets and, and they ask me, can I really throw it out? And I was like, you absolutely can. If you don't like doing a beat sheet, you don't find that helpful, you can. As long as you find a nice solid structure and you stay true to it, um, uh, this should be enough to guide you as long as you have conflict. Um, I do think most writers need more detail. And so I, you know, uh, but it, it, it's up to the writer a little bit. So more detail. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to do a super detailed one because you want to allow a certain amount of discovery on the page. Um, I mean, that's why I like having the looser structure of the nutshell to begin with. We have a couple things you got to hit. Um, if you shift from them, then you're, you're screwing up your story. Um, but if you stay solid to these elements, that might not might be all you need, and you can just write and live on the page as long as you hit those couple of moments. Um, or perhaps you need a little bit more structure, a little bit of an outline or a beat sheet. Um, but I don't recommend doing super detailed ones. Um, there's a thing I call beat sheet fatigue, where people just spend too much time on that, particularly if you're getting feedback, if you're sharing your your um, nutshell or your uh, your I'm sorry your beat sheet or your outline with your writing group or, or people like that, you know, maybe get feedback on maybe like an eight page one. If it's any longer than that, it's getting to so much detail that we'd rather read the script at that point. Um, you know, a beat sheet ultimately is for your 
benefit anyway. So what it's whatever you need. If, if you need a little more structure than just this, and like I said, I think most people need a little bit more, I think it's a pretty good idea to have a loose guide of, you know, this happens, I think this happens, then this happens, then this happens, but kind of loose so that you can discover somewhat on the page. What about conflict fatigue? What about someone adding too much conflict right away, but there's no real purpose? It's just, it's just creating friction because the writer thinks they need it, but then it doesn't really lend itself to the story. Do you see that a lot? Or do you see not enough conflict? I see not enough a conflict more often as a problem. Um, what you're describing of there being too much, it sounds to me like it would be the case of somebody who hadn't really figured out what the story is. Um, and they're just, they just know screenwriter 101, I'm supposed to have conflict, right? So they just have a bunch of conflict, but there's not necessarily a purpose. So it sounds like that might be a little situational or episodic. Um, but I'd have to kind of see that on a case-by-case case basis. I saw a headline on medium.com the other day, and the woman was writing about something to the effect of, stop calling yourself an aspiring writer. You are a writer. How do you feel about that for new writers? Well, the question would be, but are you writing? If you're writing, then I agree. Don't call yourself an aspiring writer. I do, however, meet a fair number of aspiring writers, and I talk to them, and I ask, you know, so how many scripts have you written? And, well, they haven't written one yet. You know, um, then I would say they're still aspiring. You've got, if you want to be a writer, you have to write. I mean, writing's work. It, you know, it's, it's, it sounds sexy. It sound, or at least to writers, it sounds sexy. You know, it's a sexy idea in our mind. Um, the actuality is not sexy um, at all. It's work. You're gonna, you have to sit there. You're gonna, it, it's about moments alone on the page and dealing with it. So um, I agree with the writer. As long as you're, if, if you're writing, then you shouldn't belittle yourself by calling yourself aspiring. Um, but if you're still just dreaming about it and liking the idea of being a writer, but you're not actually doing anything about it, um, then I think I'm afraid you're an aspiring writer. Okay, fair enough. What if they're just journaling? Is that a writer? Um, I mean, I think a lot of people have found that a useful tool um, for getting the juices going, um, for exploring things. I don't, I don't know that I feel comfortable labeling them one way or, or another. Um, uh, I think at some point they're going to have to translate it to something, uh, to, to another medium, probably find a way. You know, or, or what they're journaling is that something that that will inspire um, a uh, a screenplay or a short story or or a poem, or is it just a diary? And last part of this question: What if they are actually writing short stories or scripts, but with no intention of anyone seeing them? except themselves and their cat or their dog, whoever's. That's, and I think that's fine. And they can call themselves a writer. Um, uh, I'd be, I'm surprised at that. You know, it's, I mean, I think it's hard enough. Um, I mean, that's one of the frustrations about being a writer, particularly a screenwriter, um, is that we're writing something that is so far, even in, under the best of circumstances, 
from being made into something. It, it's several steps away. Um, so I, I would question that person about why, why are they content sharing it just with their cat? If they are, then if that makes them happy, then that's absolutely fine. And I, you know, I certainly experience, I do have students who say, you know, this is the one, one respite from maybe a, a unhappy job, um, you know, and, and a life in some, some ways that is not filled with joy, that, that that's the one time they really get to um, explore and that they do feel joy is, is writing, and that's completely valid. I just want them to encourage to share it with, with the world, but that's up to them. Do facts make good stories? Facts are tricky. Um, so I think the hardest stories to break are ones that are based on real life events. Um, and uh, I have a philosophy a little bit with my students and clients that I tell them when it comes to research, I say Wikipedia it and be done. Um, the more you know sometimes is, is a problem actually. Now, that's gonna work with some stories better than others. Um, you know, you, you can have a lot more freedom if you're gonna write, if you're writing about William Wallace, where there are very few written records uh, at that time, and you could have an enormous amount of freedom in, in, and with something like Braveheart, uh, because we knew very little about the man, um, versus if you're gonna do um, a, a story about, a, you know, about Elton John, um, you know, someone who's actually, you know, uh, in the, uh, who's living and whose facts a lot, a lot of us know. You're gonna, you're gonna have to, you can't have as much leeway necessarily. Um, so uh, it, it is harder to make true life stories work as stories. Because again, remember, life is a situation. Life itself is not a story. Um, so you're gonna have to find ways to structure things in, for maximum impact in, in order to tell a story. Um, I had an experience once where I was at a party and a, uh, a student uh, introduced me to a prominent documentary filmmaker who I, who I won't name. Okay. And, uh, and when, and she introduced me and, you know, as her screenwriting teacher and the author of this book that's about screenwriting uh, story structure, and his attitude was a little bit like, yeah, structure smucture. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, well, let me understand you. You know, when you make your documentary films, are they just two-hour interviews with no cuts at all? Do you employ editing? Do you have cuts? And he was like, yeah, of course. I was like, okay, well, if you employ editing, if you have cuts, you're using structure. Right. That's all structure is. Structure is about choosing what events you show in the order that you show them in and what events you don't show. That's all it is. So um, we can manipulate real life events to an extent, in, and that's what we're gonna have to do, unless you wanna just show a two hour interview of, with absolutely no cuts. Um, if, you know, if, you are, if your documentary film is telling a story, you're gonna have to have cuts. Um, and you're, it, you're gonna have to choose which moments you show and which moments you cut away from and, um, and which moments you don't show. Um, some true life events are more easily can be made into stories than others. 
Some it's going to be very difficult. So I can't promise when people you know come in and they're, they're doing something on a biographical figure um, that it's necessarily going to work. And sometimes you know I, I can um, sympathize with them the trouble. But if we can't find certain patterns in some 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 people's lives, it's it, it dramatically may not make for a good story, um, unfortunately. But the less we know about them, the better, because then we can make up more, or we can be more, um, you know, the, the less that there are uh, living figures involved, and we can speculate about, for example, what the protagonist's flaw was, and, you know, um, it doesn't mean that we're radically changing from the truth, but if it's not a figure we know so much about, we can be a little more flexible about choosing the elements that most enhance the real life events in order to, to show a pattern that could show a story. When you explained some of that to the filmmaker, what was their response? <laughs> uh, I get a little of, of this, um, uh, but I wonder if maybe it stayed with him. We'll, we'll see. Is it easier to fix a story in the beginning? Or, or just write a proper story rather than fix it later on? It's much easier to fix in the beginning. Yeah, it's much easier. That's why I encourage people to get involved with me um, or, or a script consultant as early as possible. You know, bring me in the um, story breaking process. I really, I have longtime cl clients who view me as a coach, really. When they have a new idea, as soon as they get the idea, they'll call me up to make an appointment. And we'll, they're like, I want to, you know, maybe they're writing something else, but this other story's kind of, you know, bugging them. And they want to, like, get a handle on it and figure out the story nutshell, and they, they can set it aside, and then they can focus on the story they're supposed to be writing. Um, but it's much easier to start to try to get a handle on that early on. We could do it later, and lots of people do that way. A lot of people, you know, have, bring me in after they've written a script. It's the first draft, or maybe it's a few drafts in. Um, it's just going to be, and, and we can fix it. It's just going to be harder. You know, it's you get a little more attached to your babies, right? And you're a little less willing to throw things out if, if you're, you know, get the feedback of like, oh, this whole second act, you went in the wrong direction. You know, it's a little can be a tough pill to swallow sometimes that you're going to have to um, almost go back to the drawing board, right? Um, so it's it's just easier to have have someone working with you who is thinking from about story from an outside protect perspective um, and can help you before you've you've started getting invested in creating and in, in gotten into the world and you're creating scenes and all these moments that may or may not actually work because you didn't really think through what the flaw was and that's going to change everything and make you have to rewrite the whole thing. So. Do you advise people sometimes take the same idea and just start from page one? Like, just take that script, put it somewhere. You, you love the idea, whatever. You love the protagonist. Let's start over from the beginning. That's a painful thing to tell people, right? Um, uh, I will, I think more common is that they have some good bones maybe in the first act. And then it kind of derailed, I think is, is what I see. You know what I mean? Because the, the, they have a, a sense of the character and they have a maybe an interesting point of no return that's going to begin the main story. But then um, I, I'm suggesting some major changes in kind of almost, yeah, putting aside your act two and act three. That, that's a little more typical. 
than, than a page one. Uh, because if they've gone through writing it, even if the, even if the draft isn't working, it is about exploring story. It is about them exploring the character and it, it's not likely that they created nothing of worth along the 120 pages that they wrote. Um, so that's why it would be a little unusual for me to say, yeah, just throw out the whole thing. Let's go back to, 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 to page one. Uh, it's more like you started it and it derailed. Um, is a little bit more typical what I see. What's your favorite chapter in the book? Like one that you're especially proud of or a topic that just really gets you going? You know, the, one of my favorites is the one in the flaw because I think the flaw is so important. I think it's it maybe the longest chapter in the book uh, and I loved writing about it. And it just is an area that it's like the one tool I can give a new writer right off the bat that will make a huge improvement. Uh, and a lot of writers don't know anything about it. And it really is the most fundamental, imp you know, important thing for story building to realize um, the importance of having a, a really strong flaw. Uh, and it's a rookie mistake sometimes I see. The characters, they don't even know that their protagonist was supposed to have a flaw, right? We're not used to thinking about our heroes um, as having flaws. Um, they're not flawed. Everybody else is the one that's screwed up. Yeah, but if everyone else is screwed up, then you're making your protagonist just a victim of these things happening, right? It, it's a deeper level to start thinking about what is what is the flaw in them that is actually making their problem worse. Um, and I, that's one of the fav my favorite things to talk about with writers, to explore. Um, it, it's just one of the most fundamental things to understanding who the character is, is that one single thing, the flaw. Um, so it's the longest chapter. I, I try to ex explore it the most, and, and I think it's one of the most things that will um, give writers uh, the most yield as far as understanding story and characters, to really give some thought as to what is my protagonist's central flaw. Are there certain movies you recommend that they watch that show an especially flawed character? Oh, I love movies with flawed characters. <laughs> Leaving I, Las Vegas? Yeah. I don't know. Is that anything? Mm, that was, yeah. That, <laughs> I I'd still, um, I, I, would, I, I haven't nutshelled that movie, but I would argue that, right, so it would be a tragedy. I would argue, argue that it didn't have a satisfying enough uh, second act upturn, but I'd have to go back and look at it to see. I like movies that are more technically comedies, so structurally that means they have a happy ending, um, but they have really flawed characters um, because I think it's, it's, it's really easy and not very interesting to have likable characters. But how much more delicious is it to have a really unlikable character, right? And then by the end, you get us cheering for them. That's really good writing. So I'll point out one movie uh, that I love for that reason is the movie The Verdict. It's a Paul Newman movie. Right. And this guy, you've heard of... Um, He's a lawyer. You've heard of ambulance chasers? Oh, yes. This guy is a hearse chaser. Oh, wow. He crashes funerals under the pretense of having known the, the uh, deceased. He, and he just finds them in obituaries. He yeah. preys on these unsuspecting widows trying to get work. Um, he's such a hardcore alcoholic that he can't pick up his morning sh shot with his donut 
without the shakes. He's got to lean over at one point oh, wow. to drink that. At one point, he punches a woman in the face. The character's unbelievably unlikable. But by the end of the movie, we're rooting for this guy. Hmm. That's amazing screenwriting. That's amazing screenwriting, right? right? You can get us to care about this guy. And we do. We really care. That's, that's the, the depth of how great the screenwriting is and how great the performance, too, is one of Paul Newman's greatest performances. Um, so I love unlikable characters that you can get us to like by the end. That tells you something. Mm. Um, so really flawed characters like that. Um, I, another interesting movie to me, a more recent example, um, is Flight. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for me, what was really interesting... So we have very another alcoholic character. Um, they make good characters. Up, <laughs> they you know, do. Yeah. Nicely flawed characters. They're very. It's a great flaw. And, and by the way, alcoholism is not a flaw for our purposes. You want to find what's the underlying flaw. So it's going to be different for different alcoholics. Um, the the alcoholic in the verdict, he has no sense of self worth. In um, uh, flight this alcoholic has this incredible sense of entitlement, mm. right? So it's going to be different. You want to dig deeper, find out what is the, the flaw underneath it. And what I love about Flight, it has the most, it's a wonderful example of an incredibly surprising yet satisfying third act. Um, and I'm not, I guess I, I don't want to give spoilers because someone hasn't seen it, but I'll just say that the character, the protagonist is in, uh, we think he's going to get, we want him to get off scot-free because we, we are rooting for this guy even though he's an alcoholic and he's got a lot of issues and um, we kind of know he shouldn't go free. Um, and things don't go the best possible way, but it's incredibly surprising and satisfying. And so it's, um, it has a really unusual, particularly for like a, a Hollywood movie, I think, a really unusual third act an ending where we have a character under uh, outward circumstances, you wouldn't say on paper that sounded like a happy ending, and yet he's the happiest we've seen in the whole movie, even though things didn't go his way. When I look at a lot of Humphrey Bogart movies, he seems to play the same character, all of which is enjoyable to watch, but I don't see him especially flawed. Maybe I haven't seen all of them, so there's others. He's maybe very, very confident, definitely arrogant, but what do you think a lot of times is his, his flaw that he needs to overcome? Because I, I see him as like, you know, he's, he's got to push women away. I mean, they're like falling all over him. So what, what is his flaw? Well, I, I think par I'm going to criticize Humphrey Bogart a little bit. Okay. That um, I like him, but there is something in the way, and I, I try not to blame actors too much because you never know what all was going on. So I'll say the way he was directed in that he's a little too reserved so much, uh, in some ways. Someone actually um, on Amazon, I noticed, docked me a point. They liked my book a lot, but they, they didn't like that I pointed out that if had Casablanca followed my method, it would have been a better movie. <laughs> and they, they, they took off a star oh, for that. No. And, and, and to them, I would say, yeah, but I'm not wrong. It would have been a little bit better that there's something a little bit too reserved about him. And so Casablanca, I think, is a great movie, um, but it does feel a little dated. And I think a lot of modern audiences, particularly younger people, don't even get what happened. Um, 
And I think part of it is a little bit of Humphrey Bogart's, the way he was directed, that he has a little bit too much reserve. And also it was missing, and this is the, what I was recommending in my book, it was missing a scene, I felt, where we, we needed to hear his, inter, his inner struggle with what was going on. Um, and he is, um, he, he, he doesn't articulate that, um, what ha the dilemma he has of having to, the fact that he has the whole, the weight of the whole world's fate is on his shoulders. Um, he doesn't articulate that. And he's also um, directed in such a way that we're, we don't really get what's going on behind the mask. When it, so it's, we have to read behind, we have to read between the lines quite a bit. Um, and I think that's what's, what pa what's really powerful about Casablanca. Unfortunately, you have to read between the lines of that this, this man um, who has, um, you know, his flaw is that he has become cynical and that he has uh, lost faith in the world, um, now has the weight of the whole world is looking towards him for making this, you know, this decision that literally the, the fate of World War II lies in the balance a little bit, um, but we're given kind of the Humphrey Bogart mask a little bit, and, um, and nor does he say it in dialogue, um, nor is he a, an, an actor that, you know, is someone who wears the heart on a sleeve. So it's, it's a little hard to pick up sometimes his, his flaw. Sure, whereas you take Jimmy Stewart's character in oh, It's a yeah. Wonderful Life. Exactly. Hearts on the sleeve, exactly. he's on That's a great example. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to think of who would be the good, <laughs> the right one, but something like a Jimmy Stewart, exactly, right? You could imagine him at the crisis of Casablanca, you know, having to deal this. You, you would feel his pain, right? Sure. And we don't really, Humphrey Bogart won't let us feel his pain. Right, and I guess that was part of maybe that type of man at that time, mm -hmm. more considered more... Reserve, nothing got mm -hmm. to him, you know, sort of impenetrable, or mm -hmm. I'm saying the word wrong, but, you know, just this sort of, like, tough outer shell that you're trying to crack and, you know, find yeah. out what's in there, and so. Yeah, but we wanted to see it at least at some moment, like, and my suggestion was that we have, we do have that one moment where he's crying to Sam, he gets drunk, and he's kind of crying to Sam about, about, and drunk about what happened, and she, out of all the bars she had to come back and mine, you know, <laughs> and... I would have reserved that moment and had him do that at the crisis to be upset and drunk and say that to Sam, right? Because that's just such an important important moment. But we don't we don't get to know that because he's got that that tough uh, outer shell. Um, so they did let it crack through, and I understand you're, you probably don't want two scenes of that cracking through. But I would have had it crack through at the moment of the crisis because that's the really powerful moment that people don't get the sacrifice he's going through. We don't get it because he has such a tough outer shell. Should a writer start with character or plot? You know, I sometimes say that there are two kinds of writers, the ones that start with character, the one that start with plot. I, I think both are valid ways. Um, I think, however, and I, if someone starts with character, I wouldn't tell them that they're wrong and that they shouldn't. I think if you start with plot, it's a little easier to, to break story and to work with story. Um, so like the example I was saying with Groundhog Day, you know, if you start with, the premise is far more interesting than the character. What if somebody woke up and it was the same day a second time? That's a great premise, right? I wanna start with that, then ask myself, well, who would be the most interesting character to put in that? What if it was somebody who was naive? Yeah, that, that probably wouldn't work. 
Ah, what if it was somebody who was a jerk? Ah, now, and that helps me build the plot and the character, right? So for me, it works much more naturally and uh, it's much more easy to work with story to start that way. That said, I know a lot of people who start with character. They love to explore character. That's, you know, and for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they came from an acting background uh, and, and that's part of acting training sometimes. They'd like to get inside a character's head. Maybe they're doing a, bio a biographical figure and then you kind of have to in a way. You're, you are starting with the character and, but you then need to decide what plot moments do I want to use to help show this character's change and what plot moments am I going to leave out. But then you kind of necessarily are starting with character. Um, but generally speaking, if I had to pick the two of the two, I would say plot is the most easy to manipulate, manipulate and to build story around, um, and to make sure you're, you're, you're creating a satisfying story. Start with that great premise. What if this happened? And then ask yourself, okay, now who would be the most interesting character to put into that dilemma? Just to delve more into flaw, flaw is the direct opposite of strength. Yeah, so on my nutshell technique form, I um, pose as two opposites. You know, what is the character's central flaw? And then what is the strength that in the end, in a comedy, they either learn the opposite of, or in a tragedy, was the strength that they failed to learn the opposite of? Um, one thing I know, sometimes if it's a hard time, so people have multiple flaws. Uh, you know, we don't have just one flaw. Um, but typically they only learn one thing. So sometimes when I'm working with a writer and they're having a hard time identifying, you know, what is the flaw? Is it insecurity? Is it lack of self-worth? Is it, you know, a couple, we might bat, bat about a couple things. Sometimes I, I try not to pick one necessarily until we look at the third act and see if it's comedy and see, well, what is the, what is the message? What is this, the thing that they are changing to? because all three of those flaws we mentioned may be the case, but they will probably only discover one opposite strength because we typically, in a, at least in a story, are only gonna discover one thing. So what in the third act we see that they're finally um, discovered this uh, sense of self-worth. So we'll identify that as the nutshell flaw, it's opposite, that they had a lack of self-worth, even though they may also be insecure uh, and have some other flaws. Um, but you want to ultimately, when you're using the nutshell technique form, you want to um, phrase those as two direct opposites. Um, and they should be direct opposites. Uh, so if we were going to, you know, call in uh, Tootsie, we're going to say that he is, his flaw is a misogynist, then we'd have to identify, well, what is the direct opposite of that would be, I'm not even sure what that would be, someone who who has, I would end up saying something like respect for women. So it, it's a neater opposite than to say the flaw is lack of respect of women instead of misogynist, just so that they're clean opposites. Um, so I kind of will work with the writer sometime to massage them so that we have nice clear opposites. So they shouldn't just be vaguely, one's positive, one's negative. They should, they should be direct opposites, whatever they are. And in the case of the tragedy, I think it's important to, we also identify the strength that they failed to learn. So the idea in a tragedy is that the reason why they have the tragic ending is because they failed to change from the flaw. So we use it on the same form, 
uh, we identify what would that strength be. It's just so we can imagine in our mind's eye, had they gained, had Joe Gillis and Sunset Boulevard discovered hope instead of being cynical, then we can kind of imagine, okay, now I see how that would have been a happy ending. Um, right? Had he discovered that, then he would have accepted when the love interest says, I, 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 I haven't heard any of this, let's just go. He would have said, you're right, let's just go. Um, uh, so it's important to identify, go ahead and put into words, what is that strength? Even though the point is in, in a tragedy, they don't achieve that strength. They stay flawed. But what would have changed their destiny had they discovered it? Because we should feel that. We should feel that in the, what makes a satisfying tragedy. Tragedies are tricky, um, but they, I think they can be very satisfying. But we have to feel like, oh, if he had done that, oh, I can feel, I can just almost taste it, that he could have actually discovered that opposite strength, that I can imagine that happy ending that would have happened. On a subconscious level, we feel that with, with Sunset Boulevard. That's why it works. When he makes that choice to rub Betty's face in it, we're like, oh, why are you doing that? Right. Why are you doing that? You had your chance, right? That's what we're feeling. We're feeling that hope, that hope he should have had, but that flaw just took him over. Sure. But without that, it doesn't feel satisfying. It just feels forced if, we don't, if we're not conscious about it, if someone's just doing tragic things without um, reason. I'm just wondering about films that have multiple flawed characters. I'm thinking of like The Breakfast Club. And I guess you could say, if I remember correctly, Judd Nelson is like the protagonist. I'm trying to remember because there's so many voices in that. But how is that dealing with multiple flawed characters? If they're flawed from the beginning, we know they're flawed, they're in detention. Um, how does that work? Well, I would say, first of all, if a movie successfully tells a story, only one of them is technically the protagonist. Uh, and let me mention, that's a tool for the writer. Audience doesn't need to know that. Audience can think it's a, you know, it's an ensemble picture and that there isn't a protagonist. That's fine. Let them think it's an ensemble picture. It's for you, the writer, to structure the story to, to know, ah, but secretly Judd Nelson's the protagonist, right? Um, and, and this is good news for you as a writer because only one character has to truly have a nutshell that 100% works. So the other characters may, and generally we're gonna to wanna to see that, you know, if it is a story that is a structure, structurally an Aristotelian comedy, we're gonna to wanna to see most of the characters make a change from a, a flaw to a strength. Um, but only one of them has to have all the nutshell elements work. It's just gonna make your life easier. So the other characters may have interesting, you know, the flaw to strength, that's their character arc. But structurally, you can know, well, secretly, just this one character is truly the protagonist. And that's the backbone. Um, and then it's gonna be easier to let all the other pieces fall into place. And again, it's for the writer's benefit. Audience doesn't, audience can think it's an ensemble picture. Audience can tell their friends, oh no, there's no protagonist, it's an ensemble picture. That's fine, let them think that. What's the difference in the nutshell technique with film versus television? Yeah, so the nutshell technique actually applies to television pretty much exactly the same as it does to feature film. And it's per episode. Some people ask me, well, I thought characters aren't supposed to change in television. Is, is the nutshell over the course of a season or a series? It's a myth that characters don't change in television. It's an absolute myth. If you look at the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, the very first episode of Breaking Bad, 
He goes from being a, a very clearly mild-mannered, meek science teacher to, in the very first episode, tries to kill two people. Right. Very first episode. He makes 75% of his change over the entire course of the series in that first episode. So it's a real myth that characters don't change in TV. Um, one difference, uh, I'll say, with comedies, in haha comedies, sitcoms, um, same thing. They change. The difference is the next episode, they completely forgot what they learned. They have a bit of a reset. And so the next episode, it's like they forgot what they learned. Um, but we're seeing, I see in uh, episodic television, per episodes, complete nutshells. So episodic television, each episode needs to be a complete story in and of itself. So if you were to tune in into the middle of season two of a show and watch a random episode, it should feel some, a good, you know, for a decent TV show, the episode itself, right, should feel satisfying. It needs to tell a story. Um, so for television, you need to have a complete nutshell, but on top of that, you have to have that thing we know as legs. So that thing that's pulling us into this, the next episode. So the episode, the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, in and of itself is a very sad, it really is, and, and I, I urge people to think of it, think of it as little mini feature films. When you watch TV, the next time you watch an episode, episodic show, watch the episode and ask yourself, doesn't it have that beginning, middle, and end in a complete story? Doesn't it have all of those nutshell changes? Don't we see one of the characters go from a flaw to its opposite strength within that episode? So it needs to be that. So that episode, the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, if you just saw that episode in itself, it's pretty satisfying in one way. Plus it's got the legs of like, we know it's not over, there's more coming. But if you saw the episode in yourself, it's actually got a, quite a satisfying ending to it. What are the five biggest mistakes screenwriters make? Well, I don't know if I'm gonna do five off the top of my head, but I will say underestimating the importance of structure. Um, a good structure is, you know, I feel like that's one, two, three, and four, uh, right, is, uh, is going to pave the way. It's going to, it is the story. Structure is story, right? I, I was not, you know, that you know, William Goldman is the one who said that. Um, uh, it, it is determining character development. So all of those, I really do think one through four are um, uh, the importance of structure. Um, and then if I had to say a fifth thing, um, I want to say it's sort of a contradictory thing, that you need to be both tougher on yourself and you need to be easier on yourself. Um, that I see writers do things like, they'll say to a friend, you know, um, maybe a friend's a more accomplished writer than they are, and they'll say, you know, I, I finished my draft, would you read it? It's not very good. Why are you bothering your friend, the more accomplished writer, to read your draft that's not very good, uh -huh. right? You need to, you need to put um, a little more effort into it. You need to be a little harder on yourself. You should think your draft is very good before you are opening it up for feedback, right? Um, you're kind of wasting the expertise of those around you um, if you're sharing drafts when you don't think they're very good. Um, at the same time, you kind of need to be easier on yourself. So be harder on yourself in the sense that, yeah, don't bug your friend until your script is in a good place. But, 
but also be kind to yourself that, um, you know, there's a lot of what makes people successful is luck, is dumb luck, you know, and there are people who are more talented than you that are successful and there are people who are less talented than you that are successful. So um, give yourself a break that no, no script is going to be perfect. Even a great writer um, can, and I've seen writers kind of kill themselves doing draft after draft after draft and obsessing and getting contradictory notes and then they don't know what they're doing and, they, um, and driving themselves crazy because they're being a little too hard on themselves. At some point, you gotta let it be. You, you gotta, you know, once you feel good about it, you've done some good drafts on it, um, you feel good, you've gotten some good feedback from your writing group or people you trust, not everyone's gonna like it. You gotta put it out in the world and relax, you know? And somebody, you, you're gonna get some notes back that aren't what you agree with. Don't obsess about it and try to, because you can't please everyone. With your book, uh, the nutshell technique, which chapter is most debated by people? Whether it's a friendly debate or whether it's outright people have these very um, you know, severe beliefs about. Um, I'll say the most confusion is the concept of the want, right? So the very first thing that I talk about is that in the first scene, the character has something that they will want that they get in the point of no return. Um, this is the trickiest piece for some reason. And I have two chapters on it. It's actually the only element I devote two chapters to for this reason. I try to, and this is just from years of experience that I've learned this. I try to help people by calling it and explaining, and it's still, in, and yet still there's confusion about this. This want that I'm talking about here, I call it the setup want. Um, it is not, necessarily the character's greatest want. It is not necessarily the character's biggest motivation. And, and yet people still do that, that they still think it's, well, my character wants um, one thing and according to Jill's nutshell technique, they have to get it in the point of no return, but that doesn't work with my point of no return. My point that I've tried to make clear is that your character just like your character has multiple flaws, they have multiple things that they want. There's not a one-to-one -one relationship between wants and point of no returns. Your character wants multiple things. All I'm saying is that there's one want that they get in the point of no return. It may not be their biggest want. It may not be their defining want. It may not be the thing that they say that they want. It's just something they want. So I call it, sometimes I call it a throwaway want. Sometimes your character just wants a sandwich. All we're doing is we're setting up this little piece. I call this, be careful what you wish for, what happens in the point of no return. Um, so be careful and don't think that that makes a movie not applied to the nutshell technique because it didn't seem like the character got what they wanted. Um, I talk about in Groundhog Day, his most obvious, because it's, it's a great example of this point, his most obvious want he talks about in the first scene, he thinks that there's a, a network that's scouting him for a big network job, right? That's his most obvious want. He wants a big network job. He doesn't get that want, right? I'm not saying he doesn't want it. He says he wants it. I believe him. It's just not the setup want. So you need to look and find something else that the character wants that they get. 
So I'm not negating the fact that Phil Connor wants a network job. I'm not negating the fact that Phil Connor wants women to worship him. He wants lots of things he's not going to get, just like we all want lots of things we don't get. The thing that he wants that he gets is a little throwaway line, he says. Basically, that he doesn't want to spend more than 24 hours in Puxitani. It's a little throwaway line. Matter of fact, it wasn't in the three versions of the screenplay that I looked at at researching this uh, for this book. Interesting. Yeah, it was very late in the process that they also discovered we're missing something. We're missing something that makes Phil, even Phil, this jerk, isn't a victim of the universe suddenly making him stuck on one day. He kind of, in the original drafts, was kind of a victim of just this thing happened to him and he stuck. The writers added very late in the process, because it's not in the three scripts I've seen, but some place between those three drafts and the movie it was shot, they added a scene where he says to the substitute uh, weatherman who wants to, wants to spend more time uh, covering for him when he's in, uh, in Puxitani, Phil says, please, like, I want to spend an extra second in Puxitani. <laughs> it's a throwaway one. I don't want to spend more than 24 hours in Puxitani. We're just setting up, be careful what you wish for. Because he got his want. He only has to spend 24 hours in Puxitani, right? Except for there's a big catch. He's going to have to spend the same 24 hours over and over again. So the want is a setup want. I, put it, I call it a setup want with quotes around it. It's not necessarily the character's big want. Could we use an example from Chinatown? Okay. Jack Nicholson's character, like an initial want. He meets Faye Dunaway. Yeah. What's his first like want, want that he gets that's not really his real want? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what the real want is. So, it, so the um, setup want, we're going to find in the literally their first scene. So it's before he meets Faye Dunaway. It would be in that very first scene when he's got Curly sitting across from him. Curly's that client. He's showing the pictures of Curly as with the cheating, cheating, uh, who's been cheating on him, right? And, uh, and Curly's like sobbing all over the place, right? So what he wants is what he doesn't have here. He wants a classy case. This, this you know, cheating wives thing is not really classy. So what he wants is a classy case. He wants something classier than what he's getting. He gets that in the, the main case that's going to be Chinatown, the catch is it's got corruption all over it, right? Sure. It's a lot bigger than he thought it was. It's not even the wife. Yeah. <laughs> right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's, that's kind of his, his initial want. Yeah. So he wants a classier yep. case. He thinks he gets it. He gets this femme fatale that comes in. Yep. Turns out it's a whole mess of trouble, but he doesn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, right? So the want, very often it's a throw, it's a throwaway thing that it, they say. Interesting. You know? In uh, Juno's got another nice example I talk about in the book that the want is, uh, uh, it's, it's a really clever one actually, um, where it's the scene where she's drinking the Sunny D because she's taking the pregnancy test and she's trying to pee. Oh, right. She's drinking the Sunny D. She's and she sees an old discarded chair somebody left on out on the curb, and that reminds her of flat. It puts her in a flashback of her having sex with Polly the moment that got her pregnant. Oh. And the thing that she wants, she's just looking at a chair. She wants to save something that's being discarded. 
the chair that she pulls and she puts on Polly's lawn as sort of this act of, right? And then what's the, how does she save something that's being discarded at the point of no return? What's the point of no return in Juno? Do you remember? I don't. It's been a few years. Is it something with her babysitting job? No, she is planning. She goes, she's pregnant. She goes for an abortion. That's right. She can't go through the abortion. That's right. So she's going to save something that was about to be discarded, a fetus. So what we're doing is you're getting your want, but you're getting it with irony, right? In the beginning, she just wanted to save a chair. That's right. Okay. Right? So she's, and it fits, I call it a throwaway want, and yet it also fits with her character really nicely. She's someone who kind of saved discarded things. She has a hamburger phone, you know, and people like Polly who sort of discarded. So it's very fitting in her character <laughs> that she wants to save this discarded living room set. But then she goes to save a fetus that she was thought she could discard and discovers that's a lot harder than she thought it was going to be. What mistakes do screenwriters make with structure? Invariably, screenwriters are failing to tell a story. They're failing to realize that structure is a way to maximize the impact of their story um, and that they are ending up presenting a situation instead of telling a story. So. The, my method is a way for them to identify the eight elements that are required to tell a story, to put them all on a one-page form, and to see how structure can work for them, not against them, uh, in order to help them find the most surprising and satisfying paths for their story. So it's almost as if new screenwriters or screenwriters that haven't mastered structure are almost like recounting, um, like for a deposition. And they're, they're sort of recounting the, just the facts instead of actually putting flavor and flair in the character's voice? I think there's can be resistance to thinking that structure is going to somehow inhibit them. You know, that it's going to keep them from finding their voice. When in fact, it's quite freeing. All it is, it's, you know, it's, it's um, you know, when people study improv, um, improv comedy is not just people running around crazy on stage, right? Structure is a big part of it. Understanding the structures behind um, different improv scenarios allows the performers to find these interesting paths. It allows them to free themselves. Um, so they need just a little bit of structure in order to discover those moments. But without them, you're going to end up floundering. Right. So what is the voice of the character? I mean... I think about when I listen to, let's say, Margaret Atwood or um, Alice Monroe read one of their stories. You know, there's a very distinct, you know, you feel that that person's real. It seems like such, an, it's such a very vague thing, like the character voice, but it's so important. How does somebody kind of like bring it down and make it tangible? Well, um, when I talk about voice, I'm not talking about the character's voice. I'm talking more about the writer's voice, ah. that the writer's voice needs to come through. And that comes through in everything, all of the elements. It comes through in your word choice, um, in the way you choose to describe action, um, in the choice of the structure and the story and, and the characters. All of the elements work together are gonna contribute to you discovering your voice. And your voice is what makes you unique as a writer. Um, what makes it more than just plot. Uh, that there's something unique. Um, and ultimately that's what screenwriters are 
are selling uh, of themselves is that they have a, a really unique voice um, that uh, captures the imagination of the reader and makes us experience it like a movie and not feel like we're reading a short story. Ah, so it's the writer's voice. The writer's voice. Not yeah. the character's voice, mm -hmm. not the protagonist. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So finding the writer's voice, okay, that I can see where can the writer have too much of their own voice? Can it is it good to vary their style and their voice? Writers can definitely get in their own way in the beginning. And that's why in the beginning, um, you know, the real screenwriting 101 uh, approach is tells you to stick to what is seen and what is heard, right? And that's that's what we teach beginners because we want to start training readers to writers to rethink from what you might have learned from writing prose, which can be very internal, where we're getting inside characters' heads. You don't really do that in screenwriting. At least, you know, we're generally not going to hear the characters thoughts, literally, unless you use voiceover, and voiceover is an advanced tool. Um, uh, but as you become a more experienced writer, you're going to be, you should experiment more with breaking rules and with um, not worrying about sticking to only what is seen and heard and finding ways to discover your voice in, as a writer so that when a reader reads you, it doesn't violate the rules of screenwriting, it still is something that we can imagine in a movie, but it brings the words to life in such a way um, that engages the reader because readers are human ultimately. We want to be delighted. We want to be charmed by your writing. Um, so ultimately, I think to distinguish yourself, you're going to want to explore your voice and become more charming as a writer. In the beginning though, you're going to get in your own way if you're doing that too much. Uh, until you've sort of trained your brain to stop, uh, to, to think more naturally about what is being seen and heard and more naturally about seeing everything as a movie. Um, but voice is something that you definitely are going to need to develop along the way if you want to distinguish yourself as a screenwriter. What about getting in your own way in terms of copying someone else's voice unintentionally? So if I'm devouring all these William Goldman scripts and I'm just trying to really sink into them and then I somehow end up writing in his style, emulating him, mm -hmm. not knowing I'm doing that. I don't know that that's a bad thing in the beginning. Um, you know, we, in any form of artistry, right, we are going to copy those whose style we admire in a way, as a way to eventually find our own voice. Um, you know, if you're literally lifting things, that that would be a problem. Um, if you are, and ultimately you're going to have to develop your own voice. It definitely is, I, I can tell you, it will be irritating to read readers. And, and I'll tell you a particular writer that this was a problem with is a, a lot of young writers uh copy Tarantino, for example, you know, in the late 90s. Um, so where, um, you know, because he had such a strong voice and, and broke the rules in such a way that everyone, everyone wants to break the rules. And so, um, and that certainly can irritate a reader when they recognize that it's so clearly somebody else's voice um, that it, it definitely can have a backlash effect where we'd rather you not try any voice at all um, if you're going to just copy it where we feel you're just copying someone else's voice. 
but really great writers who have very specific voices and, and styles. Um, I, I think that can be a way to start learning how to develop your voice, to try to, um, I don't, I don't want to say copy, but to, to um, emulate in some ways a, a William Col Goldman style if you admire it as a way to ultimately develop your own voice. You're going to want to ultimately develop your vo own voice because the world probably doesn't need another William Goldman voice out there. Ultimately, what they want is your voice, right? So you, you, it should be a step along the way to find that. So if you and I were going to get together and I'm going to present to you my script and you're going to work out my scripts with the nutshell techniques, what are some of the first steps and how do I do that? Um, well, there are a couple different ways. Um, I would recommend getting my book. Um, you can get my book on Amazon. You can also, most public libraries have it. Oh, great. Um, so get my book. I, I recommend getting the paperback uh, version just because the paperback is larger format. It's got these nice big diagrams in the back. Yeah. The Kindle limits you to those little teeny one. These beautiful diagrams are like an inch in the Kindle, um, and it's difficult to flip back and forth. So to start approaching to understand the method, um, and then uh, use it to develop your story on your own. Um, if you wanted to explore things further, you could contact me and best ways through my website, jillchamberlain.com. Uh, and also on the website, you can go ahead and download free versions of uh, my Nutshell Technique worksheets um, so that you have them in a nice PDF format to develop your story. Uh, and then uh, if you wanted to contact me, um, I can work with writers both one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes writers come to me when at the very beginning, they uh, haven't written a word yet, um, but they're trying to develop the story. They want to make sure they have a story, not a situation. We can set up a consultation either in person in Los Angeles or we can do it via Skype uh, where I work with the writer to make sure that their nutshell is solid. Uh, other writers approach me after they finish a screenplay to do a, a script consultation. And then I also do uh, my masterclass on the nutshell technique. Um, I have a one day and I also have a two day workshop. Um, those are in Los Angeles during the summers. Um, uh, those are ways that you can work with me to understand the nutshell technique more. And with these master classes, uh, do you have students bring in their own scripts? And as a part of the class, you dissect through with the nutshell technique? Yeah, so the, the um, master class, it's a, it's a one day and it's a two day. And so we're not going to have time to read your screenplay in, in this. Uh, but what I will do in the, um, in the master class is I will walk through some movies um, and diagram up on the whiteboard looking at the nutshell technique pointing out how it could have ended up a, a situation instead of a story, looking at a couple of famous film examples. Uh, and then folks will, uh, those who volunteer can start um, explaining their story nutshells. So, so they can bring in on the nutshell technique form, we'll talk through it verbally, and I'll work with the writer one-on-one. -on -one. It'll be in front of the class, but as if they're not in the room. I'll work with the writer one-on-one -on -one, um, I'd like it to do it this way because, because I created this, I know this a lot better than anyone else. And so I know the pitfalls that happen. So people may read the book and they may really like the idea of the method, but once they put into practice, you know, it's one thing for me to show you how beautifully it works in Groundhog Day um, or another movie. It's another thing to get it to work for your own story. And so they start running into some pitfalls that I'm familiar with. 
So we'll go through different volunteers examples and brave volunteers and we'll uh, talk one-on-one. -on -one. I'll talk one-on-one -on -one with the writer as they talk through their nutshell. It's very similar to how I work with writers when they work with me one-on-one -on -one via Skype in private consultation. Um, and then I will kind of poke holes in their nutshell. And, 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 the, and the reason being is to strengthen it, to, to um, hit the pitfalls that I'm, I, am, I know often happen and help you find more strong ways um, to figure out things, help, help you use it to find, for example, um, that unexpected yet um, uh, uh, interesting uh, ending that everyone is struggling to find. There are ways that we can use the nutshell technique um, to help you find that. And the reason they have some pitfalls, is that because they're so close to the work? Whereas if you did Groundhog's Day and you asked them, then they have no problem? That's a big part of it. Right, it's easy for me to show and for everyone to understand, oh, I see exactly how it works in Groundhog Day. It's quite another thing when you apply it to your own stories. Um, and and it's, it is also, it's interesting because I will be able to work with you, but if you're in the class, you'll be listening to other people presenting these stories. And I think it's really interesting for people to try to fix the nutshells in their heads. So it's a really good example um, for you as a writer particularly if you're a more experienced writer, maybe you already are, think you're pretty good at figuring out story for your, yourself, but then you have to hear somebody else's story and you're hearing the problems to see if you can figure out what the solutions will be. Um, uh, so that's part of it. Um, it's also just from experience that I've just literally done thousands of these, you know? And so um, I've, I very often can hear right away what people have, thought they understood a concept of it, um, where in, in fact that they have um, misunderstood it a little bit. And I can um, just point out real clear correctives right off the bat to help people understand it at a much deeper level. It's a very clever name, the nutshell technique. What does it mean? <laughs> well, actually it wasn't even all that clever. <laughs> I just, when I first created it, I identified these eight elements, I put them on a piece of paper, and I went to label my form and I thought, well, I'll just it's basically a screenplay in a nutshell. And so that's what I wrote on the form and ended up calling it the nutshell technique and the name has stuck ever since. So.